It's my pleasure to welcome Marion Chignon Dupuis today with us at this IBA IMD interview. Marion has lived at the Himalayas for 22 years. She has climbed the Everest three times and she is also the founder of Global Nomad, a social enterprise that has contributed to over 50 humanitarian projects, ranging from education to environmental damage and promoting social entrepreneurship. Marion, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. In 2017, you became the first European woman to have climbed Mount Everest three times. This is quite impressive. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? And also, what are some of the most valuable lessons you can share that you've learned about yourself and your own capabilities and maybe pushing yourself beyond the limits? Well, the first learning is um, as a mountaineer whose life uh, depends on being connected to my own body, sensations, uh, awareness of the body is like the foundation for how I build my resilience and finding a safety in being safe in the awareness of my body. The first time I climbed the Everest, well, of course, I was prepared. I was living in Tibet, uh, Lhasa, 3,650 meters high in the capital for over um, t 10 years already. And I was a trekking and expedition guide since I'm 23 years old. So being on the mountains and living in high altitude was a kind of second nature. So um, when I arrived uh, first in base camp in, of Mount Everest to climb it to the top, I was together with a group of 50 mountain guides from the mountain guide school at Lhasa. And I was one of their teacher. And they, uh, in exchange of my teaching, they were showing me the realities of what it is to, to work in such a high and the tough environment. So we went as a team, the first 100% uh, Tibetan expedition that went to the top to diagnose the problems of the pollution. So that was the reason why I climbed. And what I learned from that is that the mountain being sacred, uh, holy mountain, is the fundamental value that is very dear to uh, Tibetans from their history and culture and to be to base our project of cleaning up the mountains from that values of giving back to the mountains is purity instead of continuing just taking taking every year like and not giving back anything um, so this balanced way of uh, relationship between man and nature and giving back the sacredness of the nature where to its original nature. This is fascinating. And I think what is very interesting, you mentioned the sacred mountain, right? And how important this is. You've also lived for quite some years in a Buddhist monastery. Can you share a little bit how the traditions of this religion, how your learnings from and your immersion with this culture have influenced now your approach to entrepreneurship and leadership? Well, the culture is on the Tibetan Himalayas. Uh, is embedded into Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And Buddhism is about the mind, uh, how to understand better our own mind, and to understand better our own mind lead us to actually lead our life in the more conscious way, mindful way. So obviously this training in the monastery was um, another foundation that's uh, not like on the body level, like on the what I learned from the mountain, but this time on the mind level. 
So, of course, there is a relation between mind and body, but um, I started with the mind in the monastery to understand that, uh, okay, I had motivation and my core values from young age that I identify, and I was on the path to uh, embody these values, but still my mind was very unstable. Mm -hmm. I was very distracted with all kind of like, you know, like a monkey who like jumped from one branch to another branch. You know, I Which was... is true for many 22-year-olds. <laughs> and I was like jumping from one thought to another thought and another thought. So the wandering mind was um, the biggest challenge uh, to f stabilize my motivation. And then getting this training in the monastery of like noticing when actually my, my mind started wandering and being distracted and to be able to redirect my attention to what was very important to me, to one single pointed object, um, it was like the, the basic training that uh, I got from, for the rest of my life. It's a, it's a, a life-lasting skill of being aware of your own mind movements, emotions, thoughts and being able to actually tame it, like taming an animal, <laughs> taming a monkey. And you give something to do to the monkey. So he has to be focused on something. Otherwise, he's going to be all like over the place and then, uh, yeah, uh, scattered. Yeah. You also mentioned that in the Tibetan culture, there is this strong connection between people and nature and one of the things that is particularly important for you in your role as CEO of Global Nomad is also to protect that and to raise awareness for the many issues that we face whether it's industrialization, global warming and also the Tibetan ecosystem is not safe or protected from these influences. Can you elaborate a little bit on these values of the Tibetan cultures and why they have influenced you so much? Well the very ancient um, kind of nomadic groups who lives on the Tibetan plateau is uh, basically is based on the equilibrium between the man and nature uh, living together in interdependence. So the one is depending on the other, and there is not an unbalanced relationship. Um, if the balance is um, broken, then actually the humans cannot live anymore. Mm -hmm. It's really like a matter of survival. So surviving in that kind of um, high altitude ecosystem is very fragile and very easy to break the balance. So they kind of developed a wisdom or a knowledge that is very refined on how to maintain this balance. And it's solely embodied in their way of living. So when you see nomads, uh, they care for the yaks mm -hmm. and the yaks care for the nomads. They protect each other. So there is this very strong bonds and you actually don't know anymore who is helping who or who is protecting who. It's interesting. How do we bring that or how do we bring that back to our thinking nowadays? Because in many ways, I think when we talk about climate change, sustainability, we say we have lost connection to nature. So mm -hmm. what is something that we could learn that we could maybe even import from, from this Tibetan thinking? Well, first, as a human group, um, knowing that we depend on each other, that, I mean, if we don't have this clothes to wear or whatever we are using in our daily life that is made by others and understanding that we depend on others as a human group. So 
that's the man-to-man -man, uh, connection. And then, of course, the man-to-nature connection is even broader, and it's to kind of bring that back into our culture is a, it's, it's a great challenge because, as I said before, it's a very ancient way of living that uh, the nomadic groups of Tibet has carried yeah. from generation to generation until now. And then suddenly, if we decide now in Western modern cultures to uh, want to get some wisdoms or mm. insight from them and just to integrate that in our culture, we have to do a lot of adaptas adaptation. Indeed. And this adaptation has to be real. It cannot be abstract or only in the philosophic, philosophical yeah. level. It has to be really like directly connected to our concerns mm -hmm. of our daily concerns. Yeah. Because what culture is about is uh, it's just a <laughs> very yeah. basic kind of like, uh, not, I mean, the survival is it's what is at stake maybe. I think for the youngest, for younger generation, they already feel that there is a, a risk of yeah. if we don't reintegrate these uh, notions of man and nature harmony uh, into a culture, there will be kind of no foundations for the for us as human to continue living on this earth. So they have this kind of like a deep down kind of awareness yeah. of survival, of course. So which I think is the only way uh, to get into a transformation of our habits for our, in our way of living. Because if it's just, I mean, it has to be at the survival level. It, it can only be at this level, very as a very physical bodily sensation yeah. level <laughs> of feeling like into your guts. That's, it's not going to happen in any other ways. That if I don't bring back some kind of like uh, awareness that there is a balance between man and nature, that if I don't respect it, it's not going to work. It's not philosophically yeah. that is going to work. You've mentioned the importance of immersing yourself with the culture. I think in your case, we can clearly say you have immersed yourself very much with this culture. You are almost feeling like part of this uh, cultural group. How difficult was it nevertheless as a quote unquote foreigner, even though you have lived there for many years, to mobilize stakeholders for your initiatives. You then founded Global Nomad mm -hmm. and to really mobilize also the local community and really get them behind your cause, which was very much in line with their thinking. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, you're coming a little bit with an outside in perspective here. Yes, I think that the, the common ground we were having is the Buddhist principles, mm -hmm. which is actually universal. It's not about Tibetan culture or even like Asian or Eastern traditions versus like Western traditions. Buddhist principles and their foundation are very basic and uh, we can talk the same language when we talk about interdependence. Okay, this is actually in modern language we call about collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everybody is now becoming aware that's actually is going to be the future. And even in leadership, of course, that's, uh, it's a growing awareness that uh, to reinvent, uh, reinventing uh, leadership with this notion of uh, collective intelligence. And uh, what else? In terms of principle from Buddhism, impermanence. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's the only constant in life is that it's, ch it's changing, it changes. So getting familiar with this idea and then, I mean, this is what we are talking about here in, about resilience, um, how to embrace the change and to make it uh, something that we are friend with and we actually use it as a vehicle for uh, uh, getting where we want to, 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 
to go. Yeah. So you say basically what really helped you in kind of speaking to them is speaking the same language, which right. in your case was the Buddhism yes. uh, tradition, the Buddhism principles. Yes. One of the very interesting projects that you managed uh, to launch is the Clean Everest project. Can you tell us a little bit more about this and what inspired you to embark on that very ambitious project? They embarked on me, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was a teacher at the Mountain Guide School. Mm -hmm. So they are um, the mountain guides and the, the expedition leader, a Tibetan expedition leader, one person who was in charge of the private company who was affiliated to the school, the Mountain Guide School. So together, we had a kind of entrepreneurial uh, aspects with the private company and the social aspect with the school. Mm -hmm. And as being a teacher in the school for sustainability and then uh, learning the mountain-related job yeah. as a, like being trained by the guides in the mountains to go to a higher cell altitude, to the top of Everest. And then, yeah, we came up together with a, a kind of a plan that I could help them to, to, to make an action plan according to their vision. The vision was coming directly from them because we worked for three years actually in the school about building up this vision with, on, with Tibetan, in Tibetan language, with Tibetan values, core values. So they were becoming the ambassador of these projects Amazing, at the yeah. school. And then the environmental charter that was guidelines basically on how to protect the mountains, mm -hmm. so what to do with plastic, what to do with cans, what to do with glasses, what to do with batteries, where to store the, the trash, and where, how to transport them down to the base camp. All that action, action plan was mm, defined or described into a both like the environmental charter and also like a, a, a more global kind of mm -hmm. uh, project plan. So that I was helping to structure the plan and also to follow up on every year. It took us six years to implement the plan. Yeah. And at the end, of course, the governments, uh, local governments and central governments were part of the big picture of like uh, which endorsing the mm -hmm, environmental absolutely. charter, yeah, yeah to, so that every uh, international expedition that comes, they have to sign for the yeah the uh, environmental uh, charter, and then if they don't actually take it seriously or don't take responsibility for bringing back down their trash, they are kind of um, um, banned for mm -hmm. for the oh, next year, uh, yeah. So and we put it some quotas also that there would be not too many expeditions coming every year. So it's still manageable to have a, a limited amount of climbers every year. And I mean the most difficult part of Clean Everest project was the highest camps uh, above seven thousand meters. Yeah. Uh, there are there are still a lot of uh, west yeah. there like old tanks or oxygen tanks. And so those uh, type of uh, technical uh, waste, we had to bring them down with professional climbers and they are paid for it. And each kilo they bring down, they're paid yeah. Yeah, $15. And so we wait, you know, <laughs> each kilo. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, they get some tokens. And then when they arrive in the base camp, they get the money. 
with this respect, can you give us a feeling of what is the extent of the environmental damage when we talk about the, the waste that, that climbers leave on their way to Mount Everest? What, what, is the, what is the type of waste they leave behind? So it depends on the, the altitude. Uh, high up, uh, the highest camps above 7,000 is more like technical, mm -hmm. like IP gas yeah. um, bottles. Uh, lower altitude, around 6,500 meters high, which is actually the big coordination platform yeah. the, where the project take place. That's where we spent most of the time during the expedition. And that's where there was most waste, like 75% of the mm -hmm. waste were there. And that was cans of food yeah. and plastics, like uh, you know, Coca-Cola bottles, plastic bottles, and, and glass. Uh, so, for example, in 2015, there were earthquakes uh, on the mountain. So all the groups left suddenly. They left everything on the mountain. So 2016, obviously, we had to clean up everything. To clean up everything. Yeah. So that was 10 tons of yeah. trash um, altogether. I've read that you've managed to remove three quarters of the waste of the Tibetan side of the mountain. Actually, at the end, it was 100%. Wow, mm. amazing. Congratulations. So my question would be, what could maybe other parts of the Himalaya learn from this kind of setup? How can we replicate and scale that maybe across all the regions? Because I mentioned that waste is not just a problem at that part of the mountain. So on the Himalayas, you know, there is a one side is in Tibet and yeah. another side is in Nepal. Yeah. So we have two governments uh, in charge for this problem. And then from the Tibetan side, uh, after finishing this waste management model uh, project on Mount Everest, it was replicated on, on other peaks of, of, in Tibet. Really? So because the government is completely now in charge, yeah. they control everything and uh, it's very well done. But on the uh, Nepali side, um, that's more challenging because we are still working on the strategy mm -hmm. with now the army getting involved for Mount Everest and all the peaks in Himalayas um, in Nepal, where actually most of the peaks are in Nepal. There are more in Tibet, but yeah. the, the, the peaks that we climb, they are in, in Nepal. So for that part of the Himalayas, I'm still working on like designing some crafts made of trash, mm -hmm. like recycled yeah. objects that we can use also to raise awareness Absolutely. around people. So I think it's going to be more like a commercial strategy mm -hmm. so that through yeah. the trash, so if we collect enough uh, all the way from on the valley to, to the base camp, there are actually a lot of villages where people stop and there are a lot of trash. So all of this trash we can use up to, of course, the top of Everest and back to Kathmandu. If we get enough of that, we can make uh, more like derived products. And then it will be a, a real kind of uh, business uh, model Absolutely, for, yeah. for the future. And then we can involve all the air companies, helicopters and plane to transport the trash. And we can uh, involve, of course, the agent, travel agencies who uh, bring the, the groups of mm -hmm. tourists yeah. uh, to this area. And we can, of course, involve the governments into the, the bigger picture. A true multi-stakeholder approach then you need to mobilize very different kind of stakeholder groups within these regions, right? Yeah, so it's not a, the, not a single youth, company uh, game. The youth clubs and the women yeah. groups, also women groups are there. Yeah. So you mentioned also the business model side of, of these things and to say we maybe need to get like a commercial model around this yes. to be more successful. Yeah. 
Definitely. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your advice for aspiring sustainable entrepreneurs who oftentimes want to do exactly that, right? They want to take commercial means to address pressing social environmental problems. What can they maybe learn from your experience when it comes to addressing seemingly impossible to uh, address challenges, like getting all the garbage from the Everest sounds at first uh, like an impossible challenge. So what is an advice that you can share with these aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, yeah, I mean, um, mixing like social goals with um, business model is always a bit tricky because yeah. uh, to find the balance between the two goals uh, can be uh, like losing the integrity of both, actually. Yeah. So to start with like a real problem that's uh, like it be environmental or a social problem and to think of how I mean to find a solution through setting up a business. Yeah. Is um, that's how I worked, and that's what I believe in. Uh, on the way around, like having a business which is profitable and uh, um, trying to find ways to make it more sustainable. Well, of course, it's also. I think it, we all have to kind of think uh, that yeah. way. And I mean, in some some ways, that's what also we did. I mean, in the in the Clean Everest uh, project, there was already um, companies. Uh, that is taking people at the top of Everest yeah. and it's very profitable uh, business. And then suddenly they came up with this idea that they wanted to keep the mountain pure and they asked me how they can take this path to social entrepreneurship. So of course that was, yeah, I mean, for that kind of project, it was it was a perfect kind of setup there. Yeah. But um, I know it's the complexity of for big companies uh, who wants to become more sustainable and um, finding ways can be cooperating with NGOs who actually um, know how to do the jobs for uh, protecting of the environment and then uh, yeah I think the NGO way is an interesting one at the same time we have like, we often say we're living in the times of perma crisis right there are so many problems and how mm -hmm. do we then raise awareness say I have identified a specific environmental problem it's a pressing one but maybe it's not on top of everyone's mind like the and in Nepal, I think you're facing that, right? Yes, so in, exactly. In, on the Tibetan side, you had someone who was raising yeah. awareness, but here it's more like you need to raise awareness. Yes, that's very right. What are some of the principles or mechanisms you can use to get people to really understand a problem that they might not be so much aware of and to buy into this and to maybe feel part of this vision? I don't think we can push anything. Uh, it's just being in touch with the realities, yeah. uh, starting from small and the, what's the realities of the people and their level of awareness and what they want to transform. Yeah. Um, so that start with human kind of um, visions and uh, emotions and uh, awareness. So uh, yeah, it can't be like jumping, uh, having a big uh, kind of um, gap of uh, yeah. from starting from small is I think much weather. One question for you personally, these projects, you mentioned you're like 15 humanitarian projects, you work with, work with Global Nomad, you've pushed yourself to climb the Everest uh, three times. Where do you get the energy from? So particularly when, let's say, things don't go as planned, what gives you the energy to continue pushing if you maybe not get the resonance for the things that you're trying to achieve? Well, that's what I call the radical determination. Mm -hmm. In Tibetan, uh, it's called the Sem Shuk. Sem is the mind yeah. and Shuk is the strength. So there's kind of like um, a strength that's come from the mind that's uh, it's kind of uncheckable and that's um, 
whatever situations I'm facing, I feel like there's space for to dare to to actually jump into it. Yeah. I'm more like I said, no, no, no need to make a big jump of to to cross a big gap. But in some sometimes, yeah, I think radicality helps to make um, a big shift inside mm -hmm. ourselves. So that's actually um, sometimes baby steps helps. Like yeah. for, uh, I think there are two types of people, for those who are like in the progressive transformations mm -hmm. and those who are like more in the radical yeah. transformations. And it's, it's good to identify from beginning like what kind of person we are so that if we're more into radical determination, it's fine. It's just um, to know how to deal then with um, big stress sometimes yeah. because... Um, when you jump into something that is completely in the unknown, of yeah. course, uh, your mind has to be able to to reprogram very rapidly. Like the neuroplasticity of the of the brain has to be like really very elastic, kind yeah. of <laughs> support. And then uh, to rely on that kind of not knowing and and just figuring out as you actually experience the newness yeah. of your of, yeah. your, of having done this big jump. Uh, and and dealing with the consequences also of uh, being in a new place without having made the baby steps. So this kind of radical determination or semshuk uh, is good, but it has to be combined with uh, softness yeah. and also joyful effort. So it's not like being a warrior um, and just uh, longing for self-achievement and... Uh, proving something to others or to ourselves and no it has to be balanced with a sense of like we are like more like an horizontal level in relationship with many different people and that we can rely on and we can just relax on being a network and actually softening our approach so that sometimes I think leaders who are really too radical uh, can be fright frightening mm -hmm. absolutely scaring so that's what I experienced uh, so I'm, I'm softening a lot I think in many of our Western societies, we have a lot of the self-achievement mm -hmm. and we don't have this balance, right? We have lost a little bit this balance yeah. of relationship. We don't have this collectivistic culture anymore. Yes. So I think this is what we maybe need to learn again and totally. see how we can bring our lives back into balance here as well. Yeah, that's what I wish the most actually is that we really create this culture and together for um, what it means for us to be in uh, this collective intelligence. And there's so much to discover and it's going to be really fun and much more relaxing, actually. I think yeah. the level of stress can really go down as we figure out that it's okay, it's safe <laughs> to be together. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the new generation, the Gen yeah. Z, for instance, yeah. they see much more to, to seek for that, to yes. say it's yes. maybe not all about the self-achievement and these external kind of pleasures, but what it, there must be more to it. And maybe this is the push that we need also collectively as a yes. society to move a little bit back into balance again. And it must be really difficult for them, I mean, yeah. the young people, because they always see kind of the, the vision of how yeah. it could be to, to feel that and to work uh, as, and make our lives possible as working like that. And then they feel like, wow, I mean, uh, why? We can't just uh, cultivate that yeah. in our environments. And I understand, and sometimes they become a little bit radical, and there is this gap between like two, two generations. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, just being patient and uh, 
Yeah, it's it, again being kind and soft with the the the, the slow, the, the slow slowness. Like yeah. the pace is yeah. very slow of the transformation, and um, on the way, just enjoying. You mentioned being kind, but I think not just being kind to others and the other generation, but also being kind, kind to yourself. To right? So yeah. I think one of the things that, that strikes me when I talk to you is that you seem to have a very strong sense of why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Your sense of purpose. I think many times we see leaders that are looking for exactly that. So what would be your advice to them to say, if, if I feel like maybe I don't know really why am I doing what I'm doing? Everything seems that I'm successful, but I'm missing this bigger picture, this meaning. What would be your advice for them to, to get them closer to this, to filling this void? Well, for this question, I cannot answer the body awareness, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I can answer to the reality as it is. Um, just relying on that, taking off our glasses of like bias and preconcepts yeah. and then and see the people that were surrounding us, like very close ones and also bigger circles of people and who they are, what, what they are up to and what their, their needs and their values. So that's actually from them, I can get my sense of purpose. Yeah. I don't know, actually it's a kind of a shift <laughs> instead of like, what is my purpose? Yeah. Is that actually, how can it be in serv at service? Which is exactly the shift that we were talking about, right? From this individualistic, yeah. it's all about me towards what is it that the world actually needs. And if I yeah. stop thinking too much about myself, maybe it helps to reflect also about at the end, what can I contribute? Exactly. I would have maybe one last question to bring and tie back a little bit all the things that we discussed about. We're, we seem to live in a society that is always stressed and always burned out. Mm -hmm. um, the, the burnout rates uh, go through the roof. We, we, heard, we hear these numbers that we're living uh, through a health, uh, mental health pandemic uh, mm -hmm. where people have more and more mental health problems. Maybe you can help us connect a little bit the dots of what you said. How important is it to bring mind and body? You mentioned body awareness. Mm -hmm. How important is it to, to reconcile this? And what would be an actionable advice for leaders mm -hmm. if they're feeling these tremendous stress, mm -hmm. uh, if they're feeling like they're in this hamster wheel? What would be a, your advice to them? Well, first of all, it's going to be a culture that we have to build, to build in. Yeah and to have the vision of oh, how we are going to build this, this culture of integrating mind and body and <clears throat> this kindness for ourselves. And um, so there is, a, again, I mean, the vision is something and then there is the plan how we are going to get there. And to me, the, 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 um, the stressful environments where uh, the workplace, for example, where the practice of like just pausing and kind of reconnecting to our values or what would be feel like how to feel better. We can't really like spend a lot of time doing that. So it has to be completely integrated into our daily life activities. So for example, it can be like anytime, anywhere that just we take a breeze, breathing in and breathing yeah. out and then having the intention that actually I'm going to reconnect with um, just how I feel, mm -hmm. just to be very, very basic at the beginning. And then um, having that kind of habit, uh, expanding it a little bit, like to even in very uncomfortable situation that yeah. uh, brings a lot of stress, how I can actually integrate this moment into my practice of mm -hmm. breathing in, yeah. breathing out, and just being comfortable with Absolutely. the discomfort of it. 
and just really actually using all these toxic environments uh, not really like it's not toxic but the, there are some Sometimes kind of toxicity yes yeah. i mean that's it can be like used as a medicine almost mm -hmm. like using the it can be a support for um you know building up our mm. resilience as a culture i know it's easier said than done but um it has to become kind of like a new mindset yeah that actually resilience is becoming a part of our skills, like lifetime, long life, I mean, <laughs> and I hope yeah. long lifestyle uh, skill. So yeah, it's, it can be also trained from a young age. Also. So you say it's pause, it's breathe? Breathe, reconnect, reconnect to our deeper aspirations. Is it also reconnect to nature? Well, if my deeper aspiration is nature, Yeah. And I think for a lot of us, it is. Yeah. It is, and for the youth, I would say, even it's becoming more and more. And yeah, and then sank, sank is the gratitude mm -hmm. that I rely on something that I can be safe on, yeah. and then I trust in life, and I sank yeah. for that. Pause, brief, reconnect. Thank, thank you, Marion, for a very inspiring talk. It was a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>